Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Really excited about today's uh, episode. We've got Tyler, who is the co-founder of Trium and also of the awesome NFT project Euler Beats. And so we're going to talk about the path of discovering how blockchain can be applied and then getting to what's really the coolest thing that's going on today in the financial commerce creative ecosystem out there. So really excited for this conversation. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lex. Always good to trade ideas with you. My pleasure. So let's start off easy and just um, start with kind of your background and and training and then how you approached the blockchain space and, and had that realization. Sure. So I guess to start, I've been in the blockchain world since like 2014, 15. So right after the genesis of block of Ethereum, um, I was good friends with Mark D'Agostino, who was the former founder of Grid Plus. And we were both at the same consulting firm working on some side businesses like all, you know, interesting people do. And he started disappearing. And so I asked him, you know, like, what what are you spending your time on? How come you're not meeting for lunches where we talk about business ideas in the future? And he explained blockchain to me in about, it was supposed to be a five minute conversation. It ended up being like an hour where I just kept on trying to stump him. And like, it can't be like, it's too good to be true. What about <laughs> this? What about this? And during that meeting, I almost threw up you know, multiple times because the realization of like, oh my God, everything is going to change. This is, this is like the new fabric. And I remember going home on the six train, I was in New York and, uh, and just like everyone's heads were bobbing up and down on the subway. And I was just looking around, like nobody knows what's coming. Like there's a tidal wave, a step change about to be at the forefront of everybody's door. And like, I just so happened to stumble upon it first. And I stayed up that night and the subsequent nights, like all night figuring out and learning about this stuff. And um, that immediately like propelled me to the innovation group and, and a fintech kind of group within the consulting firm. So I became the blockchain guy there for a little while and then realized that I wanted to go build products in the real world and found consensus, which was, you know, like 20, 30 people at the time and uh, ended up just starting to work out of their office. And then when they started winning some consulting projects, I, uh, I joined them in 2016. So that was that was my journey. I can go into the Trium story too, uh, later or now, whatever you prefer. Yeah. So it's, um, I love the mental image of just being on the train. And I've had a lot of time on the six train. Can't say that I that I miss the New York subway. I bet the New York subway misses us though. Yeah. You know, and just being like, this makes perfect sense. And the stuff that came before it makes no sense, you know? And um, for me, looking back at a lot of the outcomes of the internet, the outcome of sort of the massive nation state of Facebook or the outcome of creators don't get to make money anymore unless they are doing nothing but TikTok self-promoting, like these are these are super weird outcomes, and so it's it's amazing. It's cool to to hear sort of your moment, and then so you're you're doing the consulting engagements at Consensus. I assume things are still fairly enterprisey. You know, what was the next step after that? Yeah, so we get the Consensus, join the enterprise group there. Just a few folks. It ends. We end up building the first non-financial production grade blockchain use case. I think on the planet, launching that in 2016, early 2017. 
and that turns into a couple other supply chain projects. And it's very it's very easy to to think of think of blockchain like a supply chain or like you know a ledger because that's really what it is. So you're just tracking stuff. So it was really easy for me in the early days when there was not like the top ten blockchain use case report. You know, like fifty of them. So this was like us trying to come up with use cases in a vacuum. So it just like it mapped to my mental model very easily. So after that, we realized that we could productize something. And our whole goal here, at least for a lot of the people early in crypto and probably a lot of the people now, it's like you want decentralization to happen as fast as you can. So we could have continued to do these enterprise supply chain engagements and make a decent amount of money, but we wanted to give the power of blockchain into the hands of the experts and the supply chain people that, that knew their business. So that brought us to build the first iteration of Trium, which is our traceability product that allows for people to build their own supply chains in the click of a button and the smart contracts auto-generate. So if I could just pause you and some of the words are full of meaning, what is a supply chain? Yeah, so good good, good question. It's actually like- Because there's a blockchain and a value chain and there's on-chain and off-chain. You know, there's there's um, there's lots of chains out there. Then things are off the chain. Um, <laughs> what, what is a supply chain? What are sort of like the revenue pool sizes around it? What are, what are the big players? If you could map out that in- industry structure Structure a little bit. Yeah, so you can say that supply chain is a seventy-four trillion dollar industry that encompasses like two thirds of the world's global GDP because the movement of money and and goods is pretty much almost everything encapsulates almost everything. So the numbers are astronomical. What where we focused was just bringing the source narrative is is how we called it and the trust forward of where things were. So just strictly speaking, with from a commodity standpoint or from a product standpoint, just moving things around the world. But like, yeah, for, for for the supply chain industry, I think of it like a triangle, almost like with provenance at the bottom. So where the stuff is, then you can layer on like the economic activity on top of that. So supply chain finance or invoice financing, refactoring, insurance, that kind of stuff. Then you can build markets on top of that. So that's a little bit of like, like gaming, gaming the insurance market or figuring out how to, how to arbitrage those markets. Um, and, and then at the top of that, you have just different business models. A lot of people rush to the, the trade finance layer, and those companies are now graveyards because without good information, you couldn't really create a step change or like reduce the risk premium of those markets. And so we went right to the, the nitty gritty, dirty supply chain of like where the actual just stuff is. Yeah. So maybe just one level even simpler than that, like what's the kind of stuff that you're talking about? And then what is what is trade finance? Like what what is the financial instruments engaged in, in this? And maybe as a third question, who are the banks and the financiers that are in the space? Because this isn't like buying a BlackRock fund. This this is sort of voodoo magic that nobody understands. Yeah. And and it's and it's really archaic too. So it's very hard to understand. So I guess we, we are to take a step back, we are a, a company of firsts, partly because we've been early into this. So we've kind of had to be first. So the first non-financial production grade blockchain use case and then we built the holy grail of traceability. So a simple a simple use case is just tracking yellowfin tuna. So we did this from Fiji to New York and we served, you know, beautiful yellowfin tuna as sushi at one of our consensus ethereal events. Ended up being on the center stage of the World Economic Forum that year, 2018. So you might know like the bait the plate use case. So that was us. So it could be as simple as tracking fish to make sure that you knew that it was caught in sustainable waters, that it was correctly certified, that it was processed in a in a plant that had all of their 
their correct, you know, ticked and tied certifications that you knew that it was cold storage was was right, so the fish was fresh when it got to you, etc. How how did you track it? Um, so <laughs> we literally went to Fiji and saw the fish on the boats and and made sure that everything was was correct on the supply chain. And then a month later, that company that we had set up the software system with caught some fish, tagged them with RFID tags, and they were scanned along the way until they got to New York. So that's how we connected the physical to the digital through an RFID tag Yep. in that specific uh, instance. And you've definitely scaled that process up, right, for other commodities, for other things. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and sort of what what's required to, to tag all this stuff and to anchor it and pass it along? Yep. So it's totally different depending on what you're tracking and tracing. So one of the largest consumer packaged goods companies or CPG companies is one of our our major clients. And uh, we're tracking organic cotton for them. So all the way from the seed to the sale, where it's being ginned, where it's being packed, where the manufacturing is taking place. And we're live in eight countries in Europe and all of North America. So there's a product on the shelves that you can go ahead and scan a QR code and see exactly when this this commodity organic cotton was picked and when it was ginned and, and where it's manufactured, et cetera. And in that use case, a lot of it is just barcodes and taking data from disparate databases and then using the blockchain as a single source of truth to aggregate all that data and then putting a user interface on it that makes it pretty. So that's a very simple use case, although the, the supply chain mapping was incredibly hard, which is where you spend the majority of your time. Technology is easy and it works and Tria makes it incredibly easy once you've mapped that out. But for other use cases like art, for example, like physical art, we've partnered with some companies with really good AI machine learning image recognition technology that you can take your iPhone and put it up to the picture and it tells you to go down to the bottom right or bottom left. It takes four photos really rapidly, sends it to their AI black box machine. It sends back an ID, just a random string of letters and numbers. And then if somebody wants to verify that painting Later on, you can go go through that same process. It matches the, the first ID with the second ID. If they match, you know, green check mark. If they don't, red X. So the, you can connect the physical to the digital through like a bunch of different means, but the use case really dictates what you should be doing because that, that same use case, it wouldn't really make sense to use an RFID tag because you just <laughs> rip it off the back and put it on a fake, for example. Right. That's fascinating stuff. I mean, it, you make it sound easy, but I know it's not. Which blockchain are you anchoring the data to? Is this public Ethereum? Is this a private permissioned one? Is it a bespoke Trium protocol? Is it for a consortium? Like, Can you talk a little bit about the version of the solution that you're on now? And then also how to achieve acceptance of that shared ledger? Really great question. So we have three ways that you can engage with Trium. The first one is straight up pure public Ethereum. So for a lot of the work that we're doing with um, like natively digital NFTs, which we'll get to soon, that's that's strictly on the public blockchain. For some of the work that we're doing from the supply chain standpoint, a lot of it is a, is a data reconciliation issue between groups of players. And there's no, no real need to have all of that data be public, uh, publicly available on the public blockchain, nor is it very efficient. So we have a completely private multi-node infrastructure that you can deploy, which most enterprises are moving away from and moving towards more of a baselined approach, or what they're doing is moving towards a hybrid approach, which is taking that model and then anchoring the data at certain time intervals to the public Ethereum blockchain. So you have the privacy and you also have the immutability. So depending on the use case, you can kind of pick your, it's a buffet where you can kind of choose which blockchain you want. A chain buffet. It's fantastic. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> Everything tastes like iron. Yeah, uh, it's mineral rich. Yes. When you when you think about, I'm I'm trying very hard not to talk about yield farming as part of that joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you. Th- Think about the, and I kind of want to, I want to kick around this, the enterprise, traditional economy, physical world stuff just a little bit more, because I think it's, it's, it's one of the the core theses of like the, the adoption vectors of blockchain, which is the, the, the data anchoring and the, the getting rid of the reconciliation and, and doing that at really large numbers. Can you talk a little bit more about if you see any prioritization of different industries? Like, are there industries or sectors that are more open and then others that are not? Or similarly, are there, you know, are there banks that are some of which are more open and others that are not? I would say yeah, 100% yes. And even within some subsectors, there's people that are more open and organizations that are more open. So speaking towards something that I deal with a lot is like CPG companies. So, and even within those companies, there are a lot of supply chain secrets. So supply chains and the secrecy of your supply chain used to be a competitive advantage, but now with the change in the consumers from like a consumer that cares about price and convenience to one who cares about like social good and like where my stuff is coming from, the brands that really want to bring that trust and transparency forward would love to use the public blockchain. They want all their certifications tied to a public ledger uploaded by their suppliers. So it's not it's not XYZ brand claiming it, it's actually the suppliers who supply the material to that brand. So they're moving a lot quicker. So we have a number of customers who are uploading their actual testing inspections and certifications to the public blockchain. And, and that is becoming like a point of differentiation unlike any we've seen. And the trust scores are going through the roof of those brands. But then in the cubicle over in another brand that kind of relies on secrecy, none of them want to adopt it. In the same vein, there's certain banks that are really open to peer-to-peer lending and there are certain banks that are really open to like the future of digital finance so i know that like santander is one of the leading banks that had that has been doing a lot in the blockchain space same with jpm or jp morgan with the building out of quorum their first open source software ever um, as well as a partnership with consensus so yeah there there are flavors of banks that are certainly more into this and more um more tied to the success of of blockchain and there's some that really just they're just in the stone ages stone stone ages i think there's if i could remember the uh the different names for dinosaur eras i think it's it's even past that there was like a a few years ago i did a, a social media campaign where it was just bank names with memes of dinosaurs and a whole bunch of like evaluation of whether they have a robo advisor or neobank or if they have like an ai person or if there there was like a diverse board it's easy easy to pick on banks but you know they're stuck they're stuck and all the incentives that they have are are crisscross because almost no compensation is set for 5 to 10 year performance and all compensation is set for the next quarter or the next bonus cycle. And so you can never optimize for a platform shift. You know, and I very much agree with you that understanding that there is a computing platform shift that is executing software not on your desktop or in Amazon's cloud, but is executing software on thousands, if eventually not millions of distributed nodes to to compute the truth. That's a very different place to be than where a traditional mid-market bank would be comfortable. But is is there is there like money for this space coming out of the banks? Are they spending or has the innovation budget stuff dried up through COVID and the restructurings? Good question. So I've been spending a lot of my time um, outside of financial services. 
So maybe this this information is a little bit dated, but I think there's a lot of work that we're not hearing about that banks are doing. I think trade finance specifically has a lot of money being spent being spent there. I know that Covantis just launched, which is a, a commodity settlement platform, I, I believe. So so there are there are consortiums and there is money in trade finance for sure. I think as far as like the transfer of money, like BitPesa or a, I don't know, like not not really because the fees are are so large. There's not a lot. For bank and there's not a lot for banks to do in that space because you don't really you are the bank so i think from from my just just from my lens trade finance is not dried up but i think banks are realizing the problems are so complicated i don't think banks are going to be spending on this i think it's going to be startups just like always and then banks will acquire those startups that's my thesis yeah I, and i think the you know one of the questions like two years ago was these are these going to be parallel economies one is a crypto native economy that uses the rails that are there or are these going to be sort of intermerged economies where the crypto rails will be a piece of the of the traditional stack and i think the answer has come out pretty clear that the rate of growth on the crypto native economy is exponential and the rate of growth in the traditional side is much more linear and incremental you know so there were these early projects where we're still going on which is either to digitize traditional securities or to digitize the trade finance or kind of supply chain experience or people always talked about tokenizing art like high-end art and and doing provenance on chain and you've talked about the example with the machine learning recognition that can be anchored but at the same time on the crypto native side there's been an amazing explosion of both the financial layer through DeFi, but now the creative layer through non-fungible tokens. And really much more understandable to a mainstream user that knows how to make things and knows YouTube and knows what's beautiful and what isn't. How did your work with Trium lead you to Euler Beats? Really good question. Um, and it doesn't seem like it rhymes, but it, it, it rhymes perfectly. Uh, the end of the supply chain, there becomes a full product. And some of those products are more expensive than others, uh, what we would consider luxury. And um, some of these luxury products are worth more than a used car. And used cars come, come with titles and certificate of authenticities and things that you can prove your ownership with. And uh, these other items don't. So we were getting requests from these luxury goods companies to somehow make a digital certificate of authenticity and to prove ownership I and mean, kind of clean up some of the fakes and the counterfeits. And so we built out a tradability platform um, that allows you to create tokens and manage those tokens and transfer them around and program those tokens and add the correct metadata, et cetera. So we kind of thought about this as a, as a means to an end, which is, you know, the natively digital NFTs. But... We didn't know when that world was going to come. So we were servicing the more of like the traditional world and the enterprises until, you know, six months ago or less when the NFT world started absolutely exploding, which we, a lot of people don't know this, but we've been doing, I mean, technically everything that we do is an NFT because these, these like samples or these things that we're shipping around the world are unique. So in, inherently we've been minting NFTs since, you know, 2016 as a team, but they weren't really called what we're, what we're considering NFTs until just, just recently. So Last year, we built a game live auction platform for this NBA team, the Sacramento Kings, that allows like fans to bid real time um, on their favorite player's jerseys. And they win that jersey, they get the physical jersey, and then they also get the digital jersey, proof of authenticity and ownership. And then after the third game, COVID happened and those games stopped for a while. And I don't think the organizations felt comfortable shipping around things that could possibly be contaminated. So we said, we need to replant our stake in this in this ground. So we launched a project called Sweether, 
this kind of sweater and ether, like a ugly holiday sweater that you could change the icons to be all sort of crypto stuff on them and then mint in, uh, an NFT. So I think that that was like one of the one, if not the first user generated content NFT platform as an experiment. And we learned a lot that people thought it was really cool that they could do it themselves, but maybe they're not going to spend 50 bucks or 100 bucks to mint their own NFT because really what they wanted is something super rare, super cool, interesting. And that led us to say, you know, like what days are coming up? Like, is there something that we, is there a reason that we could launch something interesting and let's move back from that? And that's when we found Euler's Day. So Euler Beats is really Euler Beats. That's the correct way to, to say it. And we said, okay, you know, 271 is Euler's, you know, Toshin function. We could launch somewhere around February 7th and let's go back and, and figure out how we can smash all these cool things that are happening in this space and come up with something that's really unique to us. So that's when we married like the Euler's Toshin function with the bonding curve with NFTs, with generative art and music, all wrapped up into something that's really cool and potentially desirable that's also ultra, ultra rare. So I'm I'm so in awe of how cool the thing is that it's it's making it's making it hard to pause. But just to get the definitions out there, what does it mean to mint an NFT? And then what is uh, what is a bonding curve and what is generative art? So, you know, take, take it from wherever you want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, what does it mean to mint an NFT? What is a bonding curve and what is generative art? Yeah, cool. So an NFT is really just a digital representation of something unique. So right now the category of digital art and, and music NFTs is exploding, but an NFT could really be anything unique. So a unique invoice that you might want to factor could be something so that there's a, there's a very real parallel between what was being kind of um, push forward in the art world and music world right now to then how it's going to apply in other facets of the world, which we can get to later. So I guess, what does it mean to mint an NFT? Minting an NFT means basically birthing a digital representation of something on the public Ethereum blockchain so that everyone can see it and everybody can account for it. So it doesn't matter whether that's an invoice or whether a really cool piece of art, um, it's just the, the creation of that token on on a public blockchain. Or private blockchain, but for our case, it's the public Ethereum blockchain. The last question is, what is generative art and music? Bonding. Yeah, oh, bonding curve. Bonding curve, bonding curve. Bonding curve. All right, so bonding curves. I'll, g- I'll give a little credit where credit is due. Simone de la Rivière was a former consensus uh, member who you know I chatted a lot with and pontificated a lot over bourbon with. And um, I really heard about this concept first from him. And at its core, a bonding curve is, is pretty simple. It's the price of a token is determined by the supply. And the more tokens that have been distributed, the higher the price. So it's really a way that you can create pricing of, of something. The actual like technical version of what this is or how to explain it is you can either buy up or sell down the curve. So if you buy up the curve, it means you're minting a new token. And because it increases the total token supply, the price moves up. And on the other side of that, if you want to sell down a curve or burn it, it means that you're burning one of these tokens and um, you're driving the price down by decreasing the supply. So bonding curves really are great at two things. We've, well, two reasons why we use them for this project. One of them, it's the way to create an instant market. So create instant liquidity, even if there's nothing there. Um, And the other reason is to do price discovery. So you don't have to like release a product and, and hope you get the pricing right. It'll, depending on how you build the curve, it can go up to a certain point where people really stop buying it because it is it is what it is. It's valued appropriately. And that's when you can say, okay, that's, you know, the equilibrium of where we should be pricing something like this in the future. I mean, this is one of the um, core elements for designing stuff on, on programmable blockchains because you are very often your counterparty is a robot. And so there's different ways to frame what a bonding curve is. I think 
for me is just algorithmic supply curve you know like uh, Bingo. economics 101 you got a you got one line that goes up at a slope you got another line that goes down at a slope and then there's some price and in this case in the macro 101 course the supply is created by the the aggregate producers right who will produce more only at a higher price whereas here you're just you're building you're modeling that out and what it allows you to do is you don't actually need to have a market or a venue to to figure out what that aggregate is and so in the case of trading for decentralized exchanges for example you don't need order books to figure out exactly what you know what the demand supply are because you've created a robot that that tries to model and mirror that and there's downsides and upsides from that but it massively reduces the uh, the difficulty of having economic exchange with a robot that lives on the protocol i think there's also the you know there's some danger in it that i guess i don't know how to frame this question really uh but i'm guessing you have a really good intuition which is how do you design a bonding curve that is fair you know where it's it's not about sort of early participants getting outsized rewards but it's about building the market and i feel like it's i haven't i haven't really heard people articulate that in a way that where there's a clear line, like how do you feel around that and, and find out the right answer? Really good question. And we've spent the last couple of weeks designing a bunch of different bonding curves and a bunch of different ways that we could go about the next uh, release of Euler Beats. Uh, Enigma is what we're calling it. And I don't necessarily think that there's a there's a fair way. That's not the lens. It's one of the lenses we're looking at it, but it's really like what incentives do we want to program using the bonding curve as that facilitator. So you can think of that, you know, su supply and demand curve equals price, and you can either make it really, really long tailed. So the first 1000 or 10,000, the price goes up by like 0.001 ETH. So it doesn't matter if you get an early because as long as you're one of the first 1000 or 100 or 10,000, the price isn't really going to go up for you. And then it could start sharply going up or exponentially going up or Conversely, if you want to sell only a few of these and you want to make sure that it, it really hurts to buy the fifth one, you can make this bonding curve, curve go exponential immediately. So right. the way that we're thinking about it is like you don't want to penalize people for being late to the party, but you want some sort of price discovery. You want to put some sort of cap on the, the total price of what you're building to make sure that it just doesn't go up forever. So you want to, you want to have those realized incentives later on, but you don't want to kill the community in the beginning. So I think that's that's how we're approaching Enigma is like to keep this bonding curve flat for a long time to allow a lot of people to get in who actually really like the art and really like the music and really like like want a piece of history and keep the speculative part of you know everything in blockchain later on so people want to come in it's going to take a while to do this and at that point you know let them play their games but we want to foster community i want to ask you in more detail about the economic attributes of the first euler beat release like if if you can talk about the you know the sales figures the just the the general shape of that and, and in the market i have um kind of a side comment which there's um especially in in video games and virtual worlds like there's the main there's the main story there's the thing that nor that people with a with a light with a normal Normal set of circumstances and constraints do, and then there is the the end game, which is exponentially difficult and is really sort of a treat for kind of insiders. And I think you have to in in virtual worlds and communities, you have to create a really nice ramp that is the main experience for eighty five percent of your people who just enjoy going through the regular product, and then 
you know, for the last 10% who are going to be your crazy power users. And five years later, when everyone else is gone from your, from your world or from your game or your project, they're still, they're still doing runs and turning around and trying to make it whatever it is, just um, using, using it for kind of internal status. You can see that pattern repeat in lots and lots of different places, you know, and people play that, play that game with entertainment on the media and they play that game with like fandoms. You can watch a movie and enjoy the Marvel Avengers, or you can collect all the comic books and know them by heart. And they do that with money, right? Like you can be somebody who went the corporate route and made a bunch of money and is now focused on passion projects, or you can be a hedge fund manager for whom 50, you know, 50 million a year is not enough because the person next to them makes a hundred. And I think that's, that's just part of human nature. And so it's just, it's fascinating that part of human nature is now being encoded into software. It's also frightening. But that was an aside. Uh, let me go back to the question, which is like, what's the economic shape of the first release of the project? Really, really cool. And, and I, I kind of have an answer of how we're taking that or how we're thinking about that, too. So I'll, I'll leave that towards the end. But um, the economics are fairly simple. There's ultra scarce 27 originals um, that were sold for a fixed price and they were sold out like almost immediately. And every time somebody buys a print, those prints are priced using the bonding curve, which we just talked about. And 8% of that print price goes back to the original owner and 2% goes to the Trium team. And that's pretty much as complicated as it gets. We paid out almost a million and a half dollars worth of royalties to original owners in the first two weeks of this project. So record companies and art artists and galleries and managers and everyone is coming out saying, oh my God, how did you do this? This is like the Holy Grail. It takes me four years on Spotify to like make this money. Tell me what you're doing. <laughs> I think... If you actually look back at what Euler Beats is, like the company, we're playing a ton of roles in this right now. So I guess I would argue that we are not paying the robot fairly because if you think about this like a movie studio or an art studio or a musician or a movie or whatever, we're not only the producer and the director and the artist, we're also the platform provider, the technologist, the idea guy or gal. So at, at 2%, we're actually unfairly paying, seriously unfairly paying ourselves, I, I would think. So let me let me let me pause there for a second. Yeah. So there's um, I swing a little bit more on the finance side. So for me, the analogy is is like it's bright. It's bright clear. There is no point. There's no distance between the distribution and the manufacturing in in the place where we're going. The the person who is using the thing will hold it directly from or the person or entity using the thing will be the person and entity will be contracting through software with the person and entity who made the thing. And that contract might be thin or it might be fat, but you know, that this trend is everywhere. So something as simple as a direct listing, right? Like if I'm Slack and I don't want to IPO through a banker and I just want to do a direct listing on an exchange. That's like an, a little naive slice of taking out an, what historically was a large intermediary. And what you've described is very similar for the creative value chain where, I mean, 2% is definitely low, but I think part of the magic again is that, that the consumer is so close to the actual object and there's not this winding crazy value chain like like there is in Spotify that completely erodes into nothingness, the value for the artist. I want to make like this this final point, and this comparison just hit me the other day, and I, I wonder if it resonates with you. So I think we both grew up in the Napster BitTorrent generation, you know. So I remember I remember Metallica getting super angry about Napster, and I I stayed home from high school that day to steal Metallica songs all day long, 
you know, just to just to like just to teach Lars a lesson, you know, like I just it takes like it, it was t- it takes like an hour to download an MP3, right? And I was just so happy to to do it, you know. And I kind of grew up on this vibe of peer to peer file sharing is liberating all of us, and everyone can get an eight hundred dollar physics textbook in India and become Einstein, you know. And there's this there's this embedded promise of everything free, everything is free, and therefore it is beautiful, and we're all empowered. And the end result has become this like horrible dystopia of being buried under spam so that advertising can be sold to us. And that's resulted out of sort of the logical extreme, the unchecked logical extreme of completely devaluing human attention. And so Napster, you know, democratized distribution and created millions of people who could all of a sudden use and consume this stuff. And what we're talking about here is the total opposite of that. It's the entirely the other way around. The massive demand, I mean, thousands of artists already, the massive demand is coming from people who want to make and who are, you know, empowered to be creators because they can make these digital objects that people are purchasing and get paid for it. And we're going to have this like renaissance of creative supply and um, fix the equation, I'm hoping. So I wonder if that if that overlaps with sort of your view of the world and then how you think about it. Yeah, I think uh, the pendulum swings, right? So it swings one way because things are unfair and broken, and then it swings another way because things are unfair and broken. And I think we'll we'll get into a spot where it's 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 actually maybe we'll see this next renaissance bring in an equilibrium of sorts so that artists and creatives are paid fairly and everyone at least knows the rules that they're playing with and those rules are enforceable. So I think I think the reason for for both of this stuff is that it was the Wild West too early and nobody liked it enough and nobody was going to win. So I think you're I think you're dead right. Um, the amount of calls that I feel in, in the last 14 days about artists and creatives who just want to launch an NFT and want to get into this world because their world is so broken and it's so terrible. There's nothing worse than being a creative and having to deal with spaghetti organizational nonsense. Like your your life revolves around creating beautiful art and music and experiences and then you're relegated to like fighting somebody who's not paying you because it's convenient to do so. So when we when we wipe that mud off of, I don't know, the fabric of these business models, what emerges is this like beautiful symbiosis between people that are creating and people that want to consume. And you get rid of the people that are that just want to take from the pie. So the pie gets bigger, the pie gets more beautiful, and it's cleaner. So I think this is going to be the coolest time in creativity. And I think a lot of people that couldn't get a job in these fields or the jobs were just so low paying because of the spaghetti that I was talking about, there's going to be like all, the, all these kids who, who have horrible jobs now and just wish they could have done X. I mean, we're going to have a generation of people who, who can because like there is no infrastructure to support these things. So like Lex, we should talk about now, what do you do with an NFT? Basically, that's, that's locked up, tied up money. Well, like, why can't you lend against it if it's really easy to, to take that NFT? And sell it on liquid marketplaces and everything is easy and you can you can like you can you can get a loan anywhere and you know what that loan is and you know what the collateralization is so we're not going to have a financial crisis like there's going to be so much opportunity it's, it's going to be unbelievable yeah i i very much agree with you and i think we talked about these markets being a pendulum i think the decentralized finance was a necessary precursor for this current boom for a bunch of reasons the naive reason is you needed capital gains for people to feel rich 
and want to translate, you know, their their financial assets into social capital, you know, and there's just such nonsense that people say about the space because it misunderstands that no matter if we're digital or if we're physical, we're we're just social animals and mm -hmm. signaling status, status, and then, you know, social position, like relative culture, uh, identity, you buy a thing because you want to belong, not because you want to, some people want to gamble, but you do it because you want to belong and you want to have your place and feel connected. And everyone feels so disconnected in the Zoom panopticon that this is, a, I think, a, a breakthrough moment. And then the second part is not only do you have the capital gains that people are investing in their own well-being and identity, but you've got the mechanisms to actually transact around it, like you said, whether it's the lending markets or whether it's insurance or whether it's custody or the whole ecosystem around it. How, how do you see this evolving? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of celebrity interest, whether it's Mark Cuban or Gary Vee or Grimes or what have you. How do you see the next six to 12 months playing out in this space? And then what role are you trying to play? Great question. So I think there's no, there's no stopping this beast. Um, I think even if crypto goes into a, a spring or a, or a winter, there are still insane amounts of opportunity um, here. So I think, what is what is it? In February, we've done 300 million in, in volume, and that was more than all of last year. So the next six to 12 months is going to be absolutely insane. And you're going to see the announcement of huge projects that have just taken a little while to get the rights and, and the, the kind of legal aspect of things done come onto the scene. So the news is going to be amazing. Um, I think what's going to happen is you're looking around right now and there's only a few places where you can launch an NFT. And there's some marketplaces that have, you know, a curated aspect of it. But even those curated aspects of it, a lot of them, a lot of them are like are still underground or crypto focused. So I think that you're going to you're going to see people that want to control the narrative or curate their own experience for their own their own customers. And they're going to opt for more white label solutions that then they can hire a marketing firm and a PR firm to build something beautiful. And so they need the, the blockchain guts and understanding and help, but they don't want to launch on the same marketplace that Unisox is going to launch on. So I think the deals are going to get much, much bigger. Um, and I think the impact is going to get a lot bigger. And the reason is because NFTs in and of themselves, the way that we're describing them as just like digital art is interesting and it's fun and it creates that, that social flex moment. But I think the majority of people are going to get bored of that quickly and they're going to want to do something with them. So we think at Trium that providing that curated experience is, is where we want to stay. And I also think that where this is going is going to be interaction and like being able to do things with your, your NFT. So with the Enigma launch, we're going to be of, of Euler Beats, we're going to be launching an upgraded experience where you can start doing things with your NFT. And we plan on running with that a thousand miles an hour. Let, let's take Oily Beats aside and I'll give you an example of something that could happen in the music space. So there's there's an independent artist, so you don't have to deal with the right stuff. They release a sample pack and say, this is, this is I'm only going to release a hundred of these priced on a bonding curve. And if you get these and you make a track and that track sells, then 1%, 2%, 10%, whatever, always goes back to me. So there, there's rarity, there's exclusivity, there's interest. And then what happens if somebody can take that song and then scramble it, remix it, create an original, and then issue more prints. And then that original can get remixed into something else. So the remix culture within like independence artists is like is where it's at. So you take something now that was that was a simple sample pack that you could download for five ninety nine, you make the initial artist a thousand times more money than they've than they normally get. And you've spawned revenue stream that's basically infinite because it's spawned, you know, fifty songs that 
all make a, a decent amount of money where those rev, those those royalties go back. So like we are creating the platform in which you can do things with your NFT. Super inspirational stuff. Thank you for laying that out. I think it, this is a great place to to pause the conversation for now. I think the the other direction that that's worth thinking about is that very often in spaces that are early, we, we happen, we all happen to kind of recreate the things we're familiar with, right? So like this concept of skeumor skeumorphic design, when when the iPhone launched and you go to your notes app, it looks like lined paper to get people to feel like, oh, this, this is a notes app. And I think the sort of gallery approach to selecting and distributing stuff is very skeumorphic in a way because it's you know, it's mirroring the the way that high art is collected, judged, and curated. And then at the same time, we have the model of, you know, the model of TikTok and the model of Instagram where you have a giant AI hive mind that curates at hyper-personalized scale, gigantic user-generated content sets. So I think there is one of the things that I'm really interested in is also how how that gap or like how that experience gap between the user-generated flood of, of content and the 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 highbrow stuff gets bridged over the next year too. But maybe we'll leave that for our next conversation. Tyler, thank you so much for joining me today. Lex, always great. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things FinTech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>